0: Hello, and welcome to the Random Works Podcast. Today, I have Lagnajeet Patnayak, who is currently a graduate student in the Department of Chemical Engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, affiliated to the Green and Jensen Labs, and who currently works on the application of machine learning to computer-aided synthesis. (laughs) learning. Lucky completed his bachelor's in chemical engineering from Ohio State University and has extensively worked in the intersection of AIML with chemistry and chemical engineering and in his free time em- enjoys playing basketball and drums. Welcome Lucky. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it man. Thank you. So Lucky, I just wanted to ask Your full name is Lagnajeet Patnaik, but everywhere you seem to go by Lucky. So what's the deal behind this name? Was it something your parents called you as a child and that stuck with you? Or did someone else bestow this norm on you? Or how did this come about?
1: Yeah, good good opening question. Yeah, so um, my parents absolutely did not bestow this name on me. They (laughs) probably don't even really like the, the nickname Lucky very much. Um, but, you know, I, I was actually uh, born in India um, and moved to the U.S. when I was about, you know, four or five years old and moved to, to California. Right. So uh, you can imagine a bunch of, uh, you know, five, five, six year old kids trying to pronounce pronounce lugnajit. Uh, it's probably not going to be very easy. So honestly, I, the the name Lucky, just like, you know, someone decided to call me that one day just because I think it starts with an L and it like, you know, it's like, not uh, as difficult to pronounce as Lugnaget, you know, in California, and I think that name really stuck with me ever since. Um, Yeah, like I said, my parents weren't too happy with that, because, you know, at first, all my school documents would say, you know, Lucky Patnaik, so eventually, like, I had to get that change and make sure, you know, people were putting Lugnaget on official documents, but, you know, I've gone by Lucky ever since, and uh, it's cool with me.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. That's really wonderful, Lucky. And so, so how did your journey in science kickstart? Were you always passionate about science as a childhood? Were there any family members or relatives or family friends you looked up to who did science? Or was it some school teacher who got you interested in the science class? And that's how your journey in science kickstarted.
1: Yeah, so um, I think you know, being sort of, uh, the first important thing, you know, being sort of uh, an Indian child, right, like, math is just always thrown at you as, like, the most important thing, you know, when, when you're a kid, so I think my interest in, in math, I can uh, owe and attest to my parents, right, just who, like, you know, really uh, built that up pretty strongly within me when, when I was a kid, and, you know, that continued uh, in school, I, math is always my best like subject. So I was always interested in some sort of application of math. Um, but, you know, I, I eventually majored in, in chemical engineering in college. And I think the reason I did that, and I think the reason everyone does that, I don't think I've ever heard like a different story of someone who majored in chemical engineering, aside from being, you know, I like math and I liked chemistry. And yeah, that was the same thing for me. So um, my my high school uh, chemistry teacher, uh he was just like phenomenal. Like, to be honest, I don't even remember his name, but he was great. Uh, And and at that point, I like, that was my first real exposure to, to like one of the hard sciences at at sort of a, um, an elevated level. And I, in my, at high schools, you know, I I took chem, I took chem my sophomore year, then I took like physics, my junior year, and then I took bio my senior year. So it was like, which one of those classes did did I like best? And I thought it was like, you know pretty obviously chemistry uh so you know just building from that uh chemistry and chemical engineering really just took me to to um, want to sort of study chemical engineering uh at um in college i, w- I will say there there were like you know uh, as as being like an indian in uh america you're you're sort of a part of a lot of different like local indian communities right um, and, you know, my parents were definitely part of that. So I had a, a few, like, role models, like, within that community, right, of just, like, older kids um, who, who, who I, like, look, looked up to and, and hung out with a decent amount. And uh, I know, like, I think two of them ended up uh, doing chemical engineering, too. So it was, like, almost, like, every single, you know, driving force was leading me t- towards, like, majoring in chemical engineering. Did I have any idea what chemical engineering was at the time? Hell no. I, you know, it's, like, And it's it's still really hard to define. I don't think what I do right now is really chemical engineering, but um, I think that's really what got me started, yeah.
0: Absolutely, and chemical engineering as a field, as you very recently pointed out, it's very hard to steal it or define it in any way. You are material scientists who are part of the broad framework of chemical engineering, as well as bioengineers and all. Once reminded of Moderna, which came out with the good news of vaccines was incubated in the lab of Bob Langer, phenomenal chemical engineer, who is currently a very big name and a pioneering bioengineer based in MIT. And that's chemical engineering for you. We do a lot of things, but not exactly chemistry, because that's a norm that generally goes about. People tend to associate hardcore chemistry with chemical engineering, but doing, it's more of a process engineering. And that's where maths and physics and other engineering principles come into play and that was really wonderful so how was college life like and as a high school student too did you have any idea about research as a career research as something that you could do for a living get paid doing for because for me that was a lot of surprise because i never really understood until my first year of undergrad that you could actually make a living as a scientist. I thought you need to be some locked up mad genius locked up in his lab who's discovering something. But coming to college, coming to a research institute really changed my perspective. So were you exposed to research science, research, the research happening in science and engineering departments in chemical engineering and other fields as a high schooler or did you taste it as an undergrad and then you were hooked? So how did your journey in research science come to a
1: yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, you, you sort of uh, discovered that research was a, a thing in, in college. Um, so, so actually, uh, I I actually did a, a research stint in, in high school. So I had like a little bit of experience going into college, but I didn't really know what I was doing. Right. Um, I think it was like the the summer, you know, before my senior year. And one of my friends was just like, hey, I'm applying to to do some research at uh, Ohio State. So I grew up in Central Ohio. So Ohio State was like right down the road, which is where, where I did my undergrad. Um, but yeah, he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to sign up to do some, some research with a professor at Ohio State. You know, I think this would be really interesting for you. Uh, and I was like, what? what does that even mean? I, I don't know. Um, but he was like, yeah, you know, you'll, you'll get paid a little bit. And I was like, okay, let's, let's try it out. So, you know, I applied I always had good grades right so it wasn't too difficult um, for me to to get the position specifically because they were looking for you know high school people um so that was like the first time I had really um been in a lab or done any sort of type of research it was like it was a material science project so I was doing like you know synthesis of uh like like some structure I don't even remember I, I was like so young at that time all I was doing was like following instructions right and you know uh, taking the lead or the steps of the, the grad student was telling me to do um, but what I really liked about that process I think was just like kind of the the freedom to explore whatever I wanted um, so the, the grad student was was really cool he's like yo we're trying to make these but you can like play around with the setup you can you know try whatever you want you're, you're free to sort of um, you know take your own crack at it so I, I really liked that aspect of it um, and I think that like pushed me to try, you know, doing serious research in, in undergrad. Uh, whereas, you know, the, the high school thing was more like, you know, just just play around. Here's like a good good start. But you know, that's that's how people get started, right? And I think those sort of experiences are really important. Um, and I think for me it was like almost instrumental in in starting my you know career as a researcher.
0: Absolutely. That curiosity, that inquisitiveness is what defines research science and for many outside Common people would like to believe that we have all the answers before we kickstart our experiments and observations, but we don't. And in science, it's more often science progresses by the negative results, the negative inferences, rather than the solely positive results. Because, as you said, scientific research or research science as a whole is a random walk, rather than a fixed distance that someone traverses someone exactly knows what to do and what not to do and they end up doing the right thing and then they get a plane ticket to Stockholm. It's not as simple as that, rather it's a very very diverse path that people take and many come from different fields and science progresses the best. When you have people, interdisciplinarity is not just a buzzword, it actually is something that's a fundamental feature of scientific progress as a whole and that's how it came about. So that was a really wonderful story of how you got enthused in research science and your curiosity and inquisitiveness that has led you so far. So how was your stints and undergraduate, how was your undergraduate like at Ohio State? Did you enjoy the coursework or did you enjoy the research work a lot more? And that is what finally convinced you to come for graduate, student, graduate studies to MIT. And what all were you doing? How did it exactly shape you up? And how did it influence you as a whole?
1: Yeah, so uh, I I love my time in undergrad, so I went to Ohio State, like I said, um, which was like, uh, you know, just had, it was up the road my whole life, so I, I lived in central Ohio for most of my life, um, and I, I'm not really sure if you're, like, you know, familiar with uh, the atmosphere of, like, college sports in the U.S., but.
0: Uh, I think you should elucidate us for a bit of a reason <laughs> and listeners in India, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, I I recently learned that like, this was not such a big thing in in other countries. Um, But in in the US, right, like the the undergrad Institute that you go to your college uh, often has like uh, really big sports teams and like these, these teams are just like, you know, often almost as big as professional teams. Right. So like in, in the in the south uh, college football, uh, like U.S. football, right? The U.S. variant of football that is played in college is almost bigger than than, than pro football. Um, so my school that I went to, Ohio State, the, like the college football, uh, American football team is, is huge, right? It's almost like a culture um, within Central Ohio. I'm, I'm sure like, you know, very similar to, to cricket in India, right? It's just like a religion. Um, so uh, I was actually, you know, really excited to go to Ohio State, you know, just because I, I loved the school so much. And it was just like such a big part of, of you know, my life growing up. Um, but in terms of like what I did in college, uh, maybe we can start get started on, on the research side. Right. So, so I, through high school, I just you know, finished my first research project. So the first thing I did in college was like email a bunch of professors like, yo, I'm trying to do research. Like, let's go. I was like super excited to, to like jump in the lab. Um, just because for me, the first semester, uh, you know, the first year classes like weren't too hard. Uh, I had like a really good support system with my dorm, had some really good friends. Um, so, you know, I, I like I just wanted to jump into to getting involved like right away, um, at least in terms of research. So the first research thing that I took up was like my second semester going into the summer of uh, my second year. And it was like um, it was in a bio lab. Um and I like, I can't remember the details of it because the experience was like so awful, right? <laughs> like all I did was like go into the lab. The grad student was like, yo, these are my dirty, like, you know, uh, glassware from the day, like, please clean them. So like I cleaned glassware for like two or three weeks. And then at the end I was like, this this sucks, right? So I, I like I quit, I like never went back to that lab. Um, and I was just like, this is not the experience that I'd signed up for, right? So I just like, You know, I cleaned, you know, glassware for three weeks. Uh, The thing is, like, um, as an undergrad, it's it's a lot of effort to, like, get involved with that research um, in the first place, right? You, like, you meet with the grad students. You meet with the professors. So it was, like, a long process to, like, get to that point. And then I just, like, cleaned glassware for three weeks. And it was, like, really disappointing. Um, So after that, I was, like, uh, it, like, soured my sort of view of research, which is really unfair, right? Because it wasn't actually the research that I didn't like. Um, so I think it took me a little bit of time to, to jump back in, um, but uh, my, my second year, um, uh, I think the second semester of my second year was really when I like started um, in my second lab, uh, which was the lab of Professor Nick Brunelli, um, who does catalysis at Ohio State. And that, that's like, that's what, you know, like entirely changed my trajectory and, and is, is the biggest reason why I'm here at MIT today. Um, so, so I, I know there's like a section on and mentors, but I, I'm, let's, you know, let's just like take one of those boxes off right now. Um, through, you know, working in that, in that lab with, with, uh, Professor Brunelli, I just like, it, it like changed my entire perception on research. So he like gave me my own project that I was able to work on like myself. You know, I had a grad student mentor who I could like talk to, um, but I was like given ownership of the project. Right. So, um, it was like all up to me and you know it, it went pretty well right we eventually like ended up publishing a paper which is like a pretty big thing for an undergrad um so i, I was like very energized throughout that entire process so yeah I, we can like dive more into the details but i think that was like the the biggest thing um you know joining that lab my, my second year that there's like you know that led me here to, to mit that's a terrific story
0: that you narrated of your experiences with research not all positive but also not all negative and that is research science for you like every other human enterprise there are ups and downs associated with this and it's very important to find the right mentors as you talked about rather than just being dissuaded or disappointed by someone's vague observation about your abilities it's very important to find the right people right mentors connect you who can help guide you and show you the light. and as you talked about college football and sports, I believe that's the whole origin of Ivy League as a whole. I think this is a chance to dunk on how it does down the road. So basically that's how Ivy League is also originated as a baseball playing league, not as a elite university sort of league. But, and that's the thing. And India might not have a very big college sports culture, but in the city of Mumbai that has given rise to many giants of cricket, as you talked about, right from which emerged into Sachin Tendulkar, the school Cricket leagues are very popular, and that has been the bastion Mm -hmm. where people have cemented their names, the legends of the game. And for no reason, unsurprisingly, Mumbai is the most successful team in the domestic cricket league that goes by the name of Ranji Trophy. Basically, they have been around hundred leagues, hundred leagues in the in its history, ninety leagues in its history, and Bombay has won nearly half of them. So that's how dominant this team has been. And that was a terrific anecdote that you narrated. And you talked about with the project that you did with uh, Professor Brunelli that really inspired you and actually got you enthused or sort of revitalized your enthusiasm. So could you just delve into the details about that? How was it like? What did you exactly do? As you said, you had, uh, even as an undergrad, you got a lot of independence and a direct paper came out of it, which is a pretty big deal. So could you just delve into the details of that?
1: Yeah, know for sure. Um, so real quick, just like what we did, um, we were working on, you know, synthesizing catalysts for uh, the conversion. Uh, my specific project was converting like glucose to, to fructose, which, you know, eventually you want to um, streamline that process so you can generate uh, high value chemicals from, you know, cheap feed feedstocks, um like, you know, biomass, for example. So, so it, was, it was a very like green energy motivated project. Um, just like a, on a large scope, but I, I think it was, you know, it wasn't necessarily like the the research. I think that um, you know pushed me to to pursue uh, grad school. It, it was more just like the mentorship, right? Um, I think it's really important to, to note that like you're not born a researcher, right? Like this stuff isn't like you know just programmed into your DNA, right? It ha- it helps being you know Indian and just like being you know bombarded with science from as a as a child, but like. Um, I think what I owe, you know, Professor Brunelli, the most is just that you know he took time to develop me as a, as a researcher, which was you know incredible. So um, he was a, he was a new professor when he started out, so you know not very many grad students. We had a decent number of undergrads, but you know what I appreciated the most was that if I wanted to if I like wanted to meet weekly as as a as an undergrad with this professor, you know I could right, and that was like very much uh, very much a cool thing to do. So. Um, yeah, there there was a point where I was like, really, making a lot of progress. So I was like meeting weekly with him. We were like having discussions on like, you know, what to try next. Um, you know, he was always like trying to teach me things about spectroscopy, how to run experiments correctly, how to think like a scientist. And, you know, that, that process, I think really helped serve me well, you know, in my grad school career where I have, you know, two older mentors that I don't really interact with as often. Um, but I, I've sort of developed, you know, the, the mindset, the, like, the, the, w- the way to think, you know, through my direct one-on-one interactions with my undergrad advisor. Um, and, you know, for that, I'm just like, you know, so grateful. And, it, it, you know, it wasn't just um, him, right? There were, there were so many grad students uh, in that lab that were just so willing to, to help. I think that the, the culture that was like fostering that lab is, is, is really great. I mean, this this is like a, a nice little plug for, for Professor Brunelli. I think he's going to be great. Um, I think he's on, uh, I think he just got tenure at Ohio State, if not, is in the process of getting tenure. Um, and, you know, he's going to be a phenomenal researcher for the next few decades, for sure.
0: Absolutely. That was a terrific anecdote that you narrated and the r- ropes that you were taught by how Professor Brunnelli actually guided you and paved the path into research science for you. And then you came to MIT. So was MIT something on your mind? You said you worked with Professor Brunnelli on the isomerization of glucose to fructose, developing catalysis and all. And so did you intend to continue along the same lines during your grad school and with that mindset you applied to MIT? Or a lot of different schools also you applied to? And finally, the ones that you got into MIT seemed most fit for your what you had planned out for yourself and all and what you had originally planned to do in grad school did you end up doing that or did you completely end up switching tracks
1: yeah so yeah i i don't think like most you know grad or undergrads who are applying to grad school like have a good idea of where they like rank at all and like what they should apply to the the only reason i applied to mit i like i didn't think I would, you know, have a chance is because my advisor was like, yo, here here's the schools that like you need to apply to. And it was like all of the top tier schools. I'm like, I don't believe you. Like this this is this is not true, right? I'm not going to get into MIT. Um so I think the first time I like realized that, you know, he wasn't pulling my leg, he was being serious was I went to this um I went to this like conference uh in in like San Diego and they had like a career fair for for grad school and there was this there was this guy from Northwestern there, right? You know, Northwestern's a a really nice school. That's like somewhere I was aiming at the time, right? Um, And I showed him my resume, he's like, I was like, yeah, do you think I'd be like a good fit for Northwestern? And he was like, he looked at my resume, he's like, and then, you know, he's like handed it back to me. He's like, we would love to have you at Northwestern, but I think you have bigger things planned. I'm like, what? (laughs) That's that's crazy. Um, So, that, that was like when I first realized that, you know, maybe I could get into one of these top schools. Um, so yeah, I, I, uh, to, to sort of answer your uh, other question, I'd always planned on doing catalysis and like continuing this research just because I was, you know, at that point, that's like all I knew, right? And that's like, all, and that's obviously what I wanted to do. Um, not, not because I had like experienced so many other things, but just, it just seemed easy, right? It is the natural choice. Um, so the, the, the schools that I applied to, you know, they all had sort of a, like a, a premier catalysis person at, at the Institute. So, I, you know, of course, I was looking at w- Wisconsin uh, with domestic, I was looking at um, Caltech, I, I visited Caltech, um, you know, really nice school. I, I, I know you had uh, Caroline on here earlier, right? Uh, she went to Caltech as well. Um, and then I think The other main school I applied to was Stanford Stanford was the only one that I didn't get into. Um, So yeah, I got into MIT and Caltech but didn't get into Stanford, which was, which is really interesting. Oh, Berkeley, Berkeley was the other big one. Um, And then, but you know, through through the visits, it was just like so immediately obvious to me that I was going to go to MIT and not not because of um say necessarily that like the research atmosphere but just like I think the the you know the visit weekend to the different grad schools is so important right like it's just it tells you you know who you're gonna be friends with for the next like five and a half years right and you know where you're gonna live and I just like made some incredible friends um at my visit at MIT I just had such a great time so I I, I was like a pretty easy choice for me I, I would say um but then you know once I got here I was like you know re- really you know interested in, in catalysis right like uh you know that that leaves like two professors that i can work with so um just to like you know clarify how that procedure works so the, the first semester at mit um for chemi you take like all your classes right it's like super tough um and it's just like you know it's like so much work um but during that process you like you, you know you meet with all of the different advisors you're thinking about um, you know, talk to them, see, see who is like a good fit and who is not. So, you know, through that process, um, I've got a lot of advice from the grad students that was just like, you know, never pick your advisor based on research. Always pick your advisor based on like personal fit, right? Um, and at that time, I was like, that's, that's that, you know, that's great, but I, I'm going to pick my advisor based on research, right? And that's what everyone thinks, right? Because at that point, you just like, research is the most important thing. This is what I should do. Um, this is like what I'm destined to do. So I'm going to do this. But um, I, I met with the two like main catalysis professors and it just like did not click. <laughs> like we just we did not have the greatest uh, interactions. N- no shade on them. You know, they're, they're both great researchers. But like the, the like mentorship and uh, personality that I was looking for was it was like not that. Right. So at that point, I'm thinking, you know, what the hell am I going to do? I have no <laughs> I have no experience in any, anything else. Um, I like catalysis is all I know so like you know I'm going to go into one of these different labs and I'm just going to be way behind everyone is just going to be like you know full steam ahead I'm going to take so long to catch up um, but you know of course that's not the case that's that's just like what we're, we're told you know going into the process but um, you know through my first semester classes I really excelled in in like the numerical method ones um, so I like at that point had just like convinced myself that you know, if, if catalysis wasn't it, I'm gonna do what I'm good at, right? And that was like numerical methods, um, you know, coding. Uh, it just like came to me a lot more naturally than it seemed to come to some of my other um, students. So, uh, you know, all the professors give presentations about what their research is gonna be about, and you know, uh, Bill Green gives a William Green, who's you know my advisor now, gives a presentation on. Uh, machine learning for computer-aided synthesis, computer-aided synthesis planning. And like, uh, you know, he gave that presentation like immediately, I was like, okay, that's, that's like a project I'm gonna work on. Um, and I think the reason why is it like touches back on something we were talking about earlier in that like, you yeah, know I, I chose chemical engineering because I loved chemistry and I loved math. And then I went into chemical engineering and it was like zero chemistry, right? Like you just never do any chemistry process. Chemical engineering is, is no chemistry, right? At least, at least, like that was my experience. And then, you know, here comes to be this person who is pitching a project that involves, you know, coding, um, machine learning, you know, which is something that I was always interested in. And you know, hardcore chemistry, right? And at that point, I was, I was sold. So uh, I I thought it was like a very easy decision as soon as I saw that presentation, and as soon as as I realized that catalysis was not going to happen for me in grad school. Yeah. That was, that was a pretty long answer. So, you know, feel free to, to, to ask any questions about that.
0: Yeah, that was uh, indeed a great answer. And as you talked about earlier in this uh, wonderful answer of yours, that um, you also sort of questioned yourself that whether you were fit enough to get into MIT or were you deserving of that? So you also had your crush with imposter syndrome, the ubiquitous imposter syndrome that plagues a lot of people in academia. So how has it been sort of dealing with that? Because as many researchers have come on this random box and have told us, imposter syndrome never really goes away, but you can always go around it or tackle it of sorts because always there are moments, whether you're sending a paper to a top-tier journal or whether it is applying to some great PhD positions or postdoc positions and all, there is an imposter syndrome that always resides within you. So how do you combat it and how do you tackle it ourselves?
1: Yeah, uh, I think that's, that's a tough question. I, I'm definitely not the, um, I definitely haven't like entirely beaten it, right? Um, you know, the imposter syndrome is just like happens all the time to, to everyone that I talk to. It's, it's kind of crazy, especially at a place like MIT, which is like heralded as, you know, the best research institute in the world, or one of the best. You, you still have people here who are, you know, always worried whether they belong whether or not they um, the institute made a mistake by choosing them um, and you know this happens to me too I think when I originally started um, I had just like no I was like terrified of like screwing up right I had like no idea about anything in this field before um, with so so for the project that I joined there were you know there were two of us right there were two students for taking for that project and you know here was was me with my previous experience, like nothing in this field. And then the other person that was taken, uh, she had worked uh, a few years um, uh, at a a, uh, sort of, at a pharma company, right? So this this is exactly like up her alley. She understood, you know, process chemistry. um, She understood retrosynthesis. And I was just like, how am I going to catch up, right? Um, But I think the important thing to always remember is that like, academia is often painted as like a competition right but it's not it's it, it, like that if you think it's a top competition you're not gonna you're not gonna do well right um so in grad school i've had the pleasure of just like working with a lot of incredible different people who have you know supplemented my skill set somehow right and and that's that's like really the, the way that i've succeeded so far is just like realizing that i'm not i'm not gonna do this alone and just like getting as much help as possible right and you know and, and through that that's how you learn right um so uh in my early uh, grad school days i had i i think i've had like two main you know student mentors and my fir- my first half of a phd was working with one the second half is now working more with the other um, and so the, the first half i did a lot of like computational chemistry uh, and I did just like didn't know anything. Right. And, and this kid, you know, basically just has taught me everything that I've known about computational chemistry. Right. It's just like working with him, you know, just asking him to be on his projects. And, and like, th- that's how you learn how to, how to think like the, the real leaders in the field. Um, so I don't think imposter syndrome is gone. You know, I, like <laughs> I'm working on some work right now and I like cannot tell if it just like sucks or is incredible. Right. That, that just like always happens. Um, but uh, it's, it's you know what you got to do is just get the opinion of as many people as you can and and work with people who you know are going to make you successful too
0: absolutely those are some fantastic points that you made and all and as you talked about, In science and academia, there is this notion of lone genius, but more often than not, it's collaborations. And science is more of a collaborative endeavor than one might think. And it is through these collaborations and all that one actually goes ahead in science. And research science progresses as a whole. Best, as we talked about, interdisciplinarity, different people with different skill sets coming together and applying it to a certain problem and sort of, helping us solve that problem, or solve that problem to a great extent of sorts. That's how science progresses. And those are some really terrific points that you made. And so you talked about how in grad school, from catalysis, something that you expected to do in grad school, you totally switch tracks to computational area synthesis design and all. And so combining chemistry, computation, and chemical engineering principles of sorts. So that's the thing you have been working on. So, could you just delve a bit more deeper? Because from the toolkits that you are especially using, AI, ML, and all these are the so-called hot topics of today's world. And how exactly are you applying them, and with what degree of success? And how do you see it, it taking us in the near future, ahead and forward?
1: Yeah. So, you know, one of the, one of the big reasons I wanted to work in this area was because it was hot, right? Um, and it was just like going to set me up really nicely for for my career going forward. So I, I think you're definitely right uh, in identifying it as such. Um, so so like my grad work has just kind of been um, all over the place. I think it the the cool thing about being uh, like a new field is just there. There's a lot of sort of areas to explore, um, and you know my project gives me a lot of freedom to do that. So. Uh, Just to like give you a little bit of an idea what that looks like, Uh, there's, you know, the project that I'm part of at MIT is funded by just like a giant consortium of like pharma companies, right? And their, um, their research like direction is like, hey, can you think of ways to use machine learning to help us, you know, like any sort of way, right? Like, ready, go. Um, So, you know, I I just get like a lot of freedom in what I'm allowed to explore and and what I'm not. Um, So... My first, my first main project, um, actually, yeah, maybe, you know, before I go into that, um, I, I in one of the, the previous podcasts, someone like mentioned their paper and, and you were like, yeah, I, you know, it just got published in this journal. And I like read it. I was like, what? That's, that's insane. So like, you know, have you like looked at any of my papers? Like, have you, have you taken a look at them?
0: Uh, i really haven't but i have sort of gone through the work that you published recently in your ideas and all and the work that you have been doing are uh, some really cool work so uh, that's the thing so but you no, yeah no to- yeah I
1: was, I was just commenting on i was just commenting on how that, that's like impressive you, hey, you're really doing your homework um but uh yeah just just uh, to to dive into the first project um it, it's it's like basically thinking about how to use machine learning to like uh, accelerate computational chemistry, right? Um, so so in Bill Green's lab, we do a lot of work in trying to predict like uh, reaction rates, you know, how fast is a reaction going to go? Um, and, you know, can we sort of influence that process? So my first project really just looks at, you know, can we do those calculations faster using machine learning techniques? Um, and, uh, you know, through that project, I think, it's it's really important to to bring up like you know this other uh topic we were talking about with with mentorship. I, I did a lot of that initial project with one, this 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 great you know student that we already had who was working on computational chemistry who taught me a lot of the ropes, but also with um our, someone in computer science, right, who just like taught me a lot about, you know, machine learning and and what that field was all about. Um, so, you know, this this consortium that, that I was describing that funds a lot of projects is like a you know pretty significant collaboration between, you know, people in chemical engineering, people in chemistry, and and finally people in computer science. So, you know, through that I've been able to, to talk to a lot of people in computer science who have like informed how I really approached uh, these problems. So, so like I said, the, the first work is like, you know, using machine learning to, to accelerate those calculations, um, specific for computational chemistry. The, the NeurIPS paper that we just published, the one that you're talking about, is like totally different, right, to the point yeah. where I don't even cite my first paper. So have, that one looks more at, you know, how can we fundamentally model chemical structures um, using, you know, a specific type of machine learning. Um, and, and what we really get into is this like issue of chirality. Um, so just like Again, I'm not really sure how familiar with your listeners are gonna be with like chemistry and all, but basically what chirality is you can have two different structures, chemical structures that are uh, like exact mirror images of each other. So like kind of like your right and left hand, right? Um, but the, the real uh, important thing is that they interact um, with different substrates proteins differently, right? Even if they are just mirror images of each other, they can interact like in totally different ways. Um, so people really haven't thought about how to model these sort of compounds uh, really well. So that, that's like the first thing, you know, we took a first stab at trying to model those compounds uh, with, with machine learning. So that, that was what really the, the second paper was all about.
0: That's really cool. And so I am just uh, sort of... Um inclined to ask you so how long before you can have a predictor of sorts and a generator of sorts basically if i want a compound if i want a kyle compound so i can just plug it into your algorithm and tomorrow you will have that compound synthesizer and all how far are we from that stage of reality of sorts are we able to do something of that sort are we able to design the whole reaction process can we sort of outline the synthesis steps clearly and in detail using machine learning and combining it with chemistry and all so is it something that we can actually do or is it something that we can do very fast in the near future
1: yeah so that's like you know that's one of the biggest uh most exciting pieces of, of research that have really come out right, and, you know in the last decade for for chemistry and machine learning and honestly we're, we're really not that far away um at least for like medium-sized structures um you know the one thing you mentioned was like dealing with chirality yeah it's a, that's a little difficult but in terms of you know like plugging a compound into a computer getting a synthesis route and executing that synthesis route—you know—we're like effectively there, right? Which is which is crazy, right? That's that's that like change from from uh, where we were at to, to now is all happened within ten years. Um, that's how fast the field is moving. So it's it's like exciting, but you know, you you always have to temper your expectations a little bit, right? Um, I'm still not convinced that you could do this entire process without relying on human expertise, you know. Like the, we had a we had a really exciting paper come out from a lab that I wasn't a part of, but um, that basically looked at you know the whole process, right? Generating a synthesis plan with a computer, executing that synthesis plan with a robot, um, but you know for us, you know you have to do some sort of uh, human translation between those two steps, and whether or not we can you know get past that uh, level of human reaction, that remains to be seen, but. Um, Yeah, I I think the the technology has come super far in in such a short time that maybe maybe it does make sense within the next five years for that entire process to to happen without any human intervention. I, I wouldn't be surprised, I guess.
0: And something else I'm also inclined to ask you. We have had some fantastic in the new year, we have had some fantastic quantum computing researchers coming in. So do you see when quantum computers they already we have achieved the test of quantum supremacy and quantum computers becoming a reality in the next decade or so? Do you see it sort of revolutionizing your current area of interest, your current field with quantum machine learning tools and all? Can you increase the space even faster? Can we sort of like magnify it? And can we solve even more impossible challenges in a rapid amount of time?
1: Yeah, so I'm definitely not the person to ask about quantum computing. Uh, I like have very recently, you know, started to learn about it. Honestly, the biggest reason I learned about the quantum computing is because I follow uh, Alon Espuru Guzik on Twitter and the, the dude is all about, like, self-promotion. He always talks about his quantum computing stuff. So I, like, have read some of that and have come to, like, understand a little bit about what the field, uh, where the field is at. But, um, yeah, quantum computing, quantum machine, that's the future, for sure, without question in my mind. Um, especially for, you know, the the area of work that I'm in, right, which is, you know, molecular simulation. That That's, like, the field that will really, I think, benefit from quantum computing, right? Because now you can just... You know, you don't have to to do all of these uh, different perturbations one by one. Right. You can just like do all of them at the same time. And that's, you know, that that's like the, the exact type of system we're trying to simulate. Right. So so now the computers are built like built like the system we're trying to simulate. And that just, you know, it removes a lot of the inherent assumptions that you built in to, to the simulations that we run now. Um, I have no idea like what the time scale for that is. I have no idea what the time scale that I'll be able to run one of these simulations, but I like definitely keeping up with this field, right? It's it's worth keeping up with.
0: Absolutely, and that is something quantum computers becoming a reality will not only sort of help us uh, make new encryption tools and all, but a big area of impact will be material synthesis and drug discovery and all. And that is something as you very recently pointed out, it will actually, help us scale and expedite a lot of things that we still need to assume and all and which are inherent roadblocks currently and that was some really cool elucidation of the fantastic and really wonderful work you have been doing so lucky you seem to be someone who has been very successful as an academic as a scientist as a researcher of sorts you have been at the top places you have been you are currently a grad student in one of the most hyper competitive places in the world but absolutely cool research environment here in cambridge boston at mit and you seem to have been someone who has been very successful and as you talked about there are a lot of issues that you had to deal around with and all so i'm inclined to ask for a long time, bias and discrimination against underrepresented groups on basis of gender, race, or ethnicity has been a big issue and academia has been no different. Like, as at the end of the day, academia, too, is a human enterprise, and like all human enterprises, our very human biases do creep in over here, too. So as an ethnic immigrant, did you ever have to face any issues related to bias and discrimination because of your gender or race or anything else, or... Was there any mentee of yours or someone close to you who had to sort of face that? And how did you have to sort of tackle whether it was with you or with someone else close to you?
1: Yeah, um, I think any sort of like immigrant coming into the country, doesn't know the language very well at a young age is gonna have to deal with that kind of thing. And, you know, I don't think I was any different um, so I, I grew, I grew up in mostly in, in like Dublin, Ohio, which is, um, uh, you know, a pretty, a pretty well-off, I think, um, suburb of, of Columbus, Ohio. And, uh, you know, it's, it's mostly white, but it's, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of sort of like Asian, uh, people, um, there's, it's, it's a little segregated sort of, uh, in terms of like population. So, um, there are two high schools that have sort of like the the richer part of the the city and, and one that has, you know, um, poorer um, people that, that sort of live in the city. And, you know, new, that's sort of reflected in the the, um, the ethnic makeup of, of the schools as well. But I, I definitely, you know, I went to one of the the more well-off high schools. So um, I I like had to deal with a little, you know, harassment, discrimination and whatnot as, as a child. Um, a lot of, you know, things that happen more more in like elementary and middle school, you know, just just kids being ignorant have have never really dealt with, you know, people who don't look like them. But I think a lot of that went away in, in high school just because I was fortunate enough to, to grow up in a really, you know, nice area that I really didn't have to deal with with a lot of that. Um I think when I went to college, you know, Ohio State is just such a, you know, I think has a, such a diverse undergrad population. I that, that wasn't even remotely a concern. Um, So I think, you know, as like an immigrant child, I have like been aware of the issues of harassment and discrimination in the US just because like you kind of have to right? it's just like a part of your life. Um, But I never really dealt with them on at least on the same level that like I've now come to see others are dealing with on a daily basis. So, um, yeah, I, I guess just like to quickly answer that question it's it's always been something that's been in the back of my mind, but I've been fortunate not to be, not to have it be a part of my daily life yeah
0: Absolutely and um, that was something that you recently pointed out. Uh, these are issues that we can easily brush off and. As much as we claim science to be a very objective, enterprise, apolitical nature, but as we talked about a very human biases creeping into it, so does the whole politics of it, whether it is funding science or whether it is making a more diverse and equitable place. Because as we have seen even in research science, especially in clinical trials, or whether it's it's in testing of any equipment, generally it has been male or predominantly white male type it has been tested on, and that's how the guidelines are devised, and that has found out later on that with change in gender or race dynamics, the effects of medicines or the way the equipment are sort of handled by a certain gender might not be the same way it is attuned, and this is something that we actually need to talk about, and you have also been very active and voraciously advocating for other minorities, making grad school a more equitable place, a more welcoming place of sorts and all. So how has it been working in this intersection actively, actively sort of advocating? And especially as you, you, you're someone who started grad school, just as the era of Trumpism kickstarted and all. And as many have recently pointed out, Trump wasn't the cause, he was basically the symptom. Like this was something, the election of Donald Trump was in direct lashback to the nation electing its first black president to the highest office in the land. And that is something we can't really disconnect. And this is something, as you talked about, even as an ethnic immigrant, we need to deal a lot with not being able to come to terms with an alien language so quickly and fast. And these are some things. So, how has it been actively advocating, voraciously advocating for underrepresented growth, making science and academia more diverse and equitable? Please.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, you know, like I was saying, I I just like didn't really um, had to experience a lot of that, you know, discrimination growing up. So, I think my first real, um, you know, like experience with that. Uh, with you know harassment, discrimination, um, and you know bias in in the U.S. on like a large scale was was the the first wave of, of Black Lives Matter that happened when I was maybe like a junior, senior in college, uh, in in undergrad, right? And, and through that, I think I, I started becoming a lot more active. You know, at that point, I, I was like participating in a, a lot of demonstrations and and trying to get involved in local organizing. Um, it was just like you know difficult at that point because i think i had additional priorities right getting into grad school um, making sure that was taken care of making sure my grades were on top so i i think you know at that point my priorities were a little different um so i i really didn't take you know the, the organizing as, as seriously as i do now so you know of course upon joining grad school you know getting past the first year of classes you know Um, getting into a research lab after things settle down, you know, you start to think about what your real priorities are. Now that you actually have time to sort of step back and breathe. Um, And at that point, you know, I I just knew that I wanted to to get more involved in in student advocacy. So my first, I think, you know, the the first real thing that I uh, wanted to make sure any sort of advocacy work that I did was uh, was making sure that it, that happened sort of on like an institute level. So um, I don't know if you're like too familiar with the structure of MIT in terms of like their policies and whatnot, uh, but that the, they always preach sort of decentralization. It, there's no um, th- there's really no willingness to, to take uh, to take action at the sort of top level, it'll always be designated to the department level, right? And then you're sort of at the mercy of your department head. If you have a if you have a good department head, then you have a good climate. If you don't, then you know you, you that sucks, right? That that sucks. And I, I really didn't like that limitation, which I you know I, I had sort of like understood to exist. So the 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 student group that I sort of joined was involved in making. Uh, or pushing for equity at the institute level. So, so the first real thing that, uh, the first like real campaign that we ran. Um, so, so real quick, the, the student group that I'm a part of is, is called Grad Students for a for Healthy MIT. If you follow me on Twitter, I retweet their, their stuff all the time. I'm, I'm sure you like you, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, our, our first, you know, our first real big campaign that we ran uh, was called sort of a, the, the mental health campaign. Um, so the, the reason we did this is because um, one of the big parts of this student advocacy effort was just like talking to grad students across MIT, you know, hearing what the real problems were. Right. And so like the first stage of the campaign, I, I must have had, you know, tens to, you know, like dozens of uh, of one on one conversations with grad students. meaning like, you know, what's up with you? What are your problems? What do you what do you struggling with uh, in grad school. And, and you know by far the biggest thing that, that came out of those conversations was mental health, right? Was like, this, this experience is tough, I need help, right? Like I, I'm struggling mentally. So um, our first campaign really looked at trying to tackle a lot of those issues. So the first big thing we were trying to tackle is insurance. So um, grad students here at MIT, uh, if you're sort of like looking for, for mental health help, you will go to the mental health office, offices here uh, on campus, which are usually reserved for undergrad students. So they'll refer you out to sort of a like a local provider. And what that referral process looks like is that you uh, at that time got, you know, 12 free sessions of mental health care. And after that, it was like a $25 copay, right? So, you know, 12 sessions that are free is... You know that's that's not enough for a lot of students who are really struggling with mental health and who, who need help on on a more frequent level say you know weekly right that's that's prohibitively expensive for those kind of people so the one thing that we wanted to change was those insurance demands or those sort of uh insurance policies that were given to grad students the second real big thing we wanted to look at was like why are students stressed in the first place right like you know what what is really the root cause and and the the biggest thing by far that we sort of pointed out was advising. So we wanted to implement, uh, you know, changes in advising style and, 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 you know, making sure, you know, people were actually taking advising seriously because that's another big thing across uh, MIT and just like grad uh, school generally is that advising is so variable, right? Just depending on who your advisor is. You know, I'm fortunate enough to have like two great advisors who just like know how to deal with people Um, But that's not the case for everybody. Right. So a lot of the advisors in academia just like need so much additional training and help understanding how to be a good mentor. So, you know, those are some of the other things that we push for. Um, And the the real cool thing about sort of this process was uh, what we took, what we call a a collective public and confrontational approach. Right. Where we like had a, a public petition and got like thousands of signatures on it. Um, and you know, we put like real pressure on the, the administration to, to actually make some changes. And at the end of the day, we, you know, we did win a lot of really cool um, things around uh, the insurance. So, so now MIT students are, are granted free weekly insurance with a $5 copay after that, right? That's huge. That's, a, that's a, such an incredible change that we were able to make in the course of a single semester, right? Um, unfortunately, our uh, advising demands didn't really go through um, as successfully but you know that's what sort of led to the to the next campaign that maybe we can talk about but you know that that process for me was just so energizing um, and just to see like the the incredible wins that we could get only after a semester and just like working with these incredibly dedicated people that I just like threw myself more into to advocacy and, and yeah for sure that I, I was just such a great experience for me
0: that was a really fascinating story. And as you talked about your advocacy, organizing and all, and this is something creating a healthier and a more equitable environment is directly in line with fostering a greater and a more conducive atmosphere for research. It's not something that can be dealing whether doing good research or groundbreaking research and organizing. It's not an either or proposition. It's something both are interlinked. And it's quite significant to know that we are having this conversation as another institute that we got into for grad school, Caltech, recently sort of got out an order that finally accepted sort of renaming the buildings and the institutions that got the campus named after famous scientists, but equally famous eugenicists, and people with really despicable views who haven't really been sort of taken down from the pedestals they have been raised to and this is something that's very important fostering and creating a more diverse and equitable environment and allowing others to also sort of excel in this environment that you so have been so lucky to have been in and that was a really fascinating piece of anecdote that you shared and all. So you're someone who has a lot of interest apart from academics too, especially in basketball and drum. So how did those develop? Were they sort of a childhood fascination that stuck? And how has it been? Have you been able to sort of keep along with the troubles and drudges of grad school and other things and all? Have you been able to keep along with your interests? Have you been actively drumming and playing basketball and all? And has it really Accelerated with your academic and scientific research, as such.
1: Yeah, uh, this, this is uh, uh, some good questions. I, I really quickly want to touch on the, on the last point that you uh, discussed on, on Caltech. Um, uh, you know, Thanks for bringing that up. I, I did see that in, that, uh, that in the news recently. And just like, it's important to realize that a, a lot of people think this is like a really small thing, like just like taking names off buildings, or it's like kind of a petty thing to ask for. Which is often what I, what I hear when we bring up the same conversation at MIT. But you know, you, you got to realize that like, if, if you see these sort of names on your buildings, you're walking across campus, and you like understood some of the messages that, you know, these people stood for, that's, that's like, you know, that's like an arrow right to your heart, right? Like that's, that tells you that, you know, you, you don't belong there. So it, it's not like a small thing to get rid of these names, it's, it has a really powerful impact on a lot of people. Um, so, yeah, you know, thanks for bringing that up. I think it's great news and I, and I hope other institutes really take the same route um, going forward. But yeah, yeah. Back back to the question that you asked um, about, you know, you know, drums, basketball, other hobbies and whatnot. I think with grad school, it's it's been really difficult to keep up a lot of them. But, you know, I, I try to do as much as I can. So I, have you know, I've been watching and playing basketball for for a, for a long time, for as long as I can remember that has always just been such a big part of like who i am and what i do i know you had uh, pranam on your uh podcast a few weeks ago right um he he like runs the the IM leagues for basketball here at mit or is like one of the people in charge of it uh so i've like seen him through that through basketball which is which is kind of cool um but yeah so so you know basketball has never really been my main sport uh in high school i played you know tennis for for the school tennis team as most like Indian kids in the US do just that's you know what my parents pushed me towards um but yeah you know, I think I, I really got more into to basketball in college just because you know they're just like there were courts right down from where I lived so I was able to play like a pretty decent amount and you know again this is back to like the, the US references but you know I grew up in Ohio right um LeBron James played basketball for the for the Cavaliers in Cleveland. So that, that's like, you know, who I grew up idolizing and, and watching, uh, you know, the, the Cavs became just like, you know, my favorite sports team, you know, for a, for a long time when, when LeBron was on the team. So like all, all of that really, you know, built my like passion and love for basketball. So I, I, you know, I try to keep it as, up as much as I can. It's been really tough. You know, in quarantine, of course, you can't really play basketball on a big group of people. Um, but yeah the, the other big thing that you mentioned is, is is drumming which is like that's a really cool hobby that you know I like to claim for myself. I started playing drums in middle school um, so you know I've been playing drums for for a long time I did I did marching band in, in high school uh, as a drummer so um, that was really when i when I really became um, I think a lot better you know, really honed my drumming skills through that um, and, and became really interested in, in playing you know, with groups of people, you know, before that, it was just like me playing by myself. So, so in college, actually, uh, you know, a few of my friends, uh, were involved in like a band and off for some reason, often their, their drummer, like couldn't make it to, to the shows. So, you know, with them, I played like a bunch of different shows, um, across, uh, a lot of different venues in, in college. And I really, you know, that experience I've tried to, to keep up with, you know, coming to, to grad school, but like getting access to a drum set here has been so difficult. Um, in, in like the, the first uh, grad student dorm that I lived in, we had like a drum set that, you know, I played a lot and my roommate at that time um, played guitar. So, so you know, dur- during our first semester when we were super stressed, we would always go to the music room and, and just like, you know, jam out for like an hour, you know, once a week. So that was that was really cool to do my first semester. But ever since then, I really haven't had access to a drum set. So, um, what I've been doing a lot, you know, recently and through quarantine, is actually you know starting to produce music, and just like, um, you know, use use that as sort of the, my outlet for music, which is which has always been there my whole life. Um, and you know, I, I feel like I've gotten okay at it, but it, right now it's mostly a hobby. But um, you, you just like definitely need a lot of that kind of stuff when you're in grad school to to take away from. You know, the, the the daily grind, right? So you know basketball, uh drums, that's 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 what I turn to
0: that was a really cool piece of information that you shared about your varied interests in basketball, growing up, idolizing teams like Cavalier, Cleveland Cavaliers, and then your drumming and how it has how these interests have really helped you get through the drudgery of grad school, which can be really of monitors and taxing a lot of times not sometimes a lot of times and that's really true and so you talked about in quarantine you switched to sort of music production of sorts and all and all those things so how else did the quarantine lockdown and the last year 2020 as a whole upend your normal schedule you're someone who does computational stuff so i'm inclined to believe that uh, Please, correct me if I'm wrong, that your work did not really get affected that much. It might have, obviously, with that year as a whole coming as a full front force mm-hmm. and the ongoing pandemic and all. But as a whole, the 2020 managed to offend your schedules as such and all. Did you miss out on, maybe you are someone who has been in competition stuff, but an academy or fundamental feature has been sort of, these random works that we have during conferences and seminars and colloquials, where we get to interact with a lot of people and a lot of ideas and thought processes are seeded that actually help us do our work in a much better manner. Was it the same in the virtual format? Did you like it or this, or that's something you seriously want to get back to once we go back to what no, whatever normal looks like in this post yeah. world and all? Yeah,
1: yeah, so I think Yet, like you said, all my work is computational, right? So my work never really slowed down when quarantine started. Uh, I think I tried to work like regular hours, you know, as much as I could. um, To the point where I think when first quarantine started, I like definitely was doing way more work (laughs) than I I used to be doing even before quarantine to the point where it was just like, it was was getting ridiculous. so you know, one day my girlfriend was just like, "Yo, you're like working way too much. You need, you need to chill out." Um, so I think ever since then I've tried to have a little better of a of a work life balance. Um, but you know, honestly, like I'm like I'm like pretty done, I'm like pretty done with quarantine. This is getting to be a little bit much, um, just because you know I, I'm someone who you know enjoys you know going out. Uh, I enjoy talking to people, like you said that's that's something that's been missing, right? So I'm like entirely working from home. I know I have a few friends who work in labs, right? That they get to go in, they get to see their their coworkers. But like, I I really don't. So I, I think at the beginning of the quarantine, that was really nice when I had like a lot of ideas that I could just like sit down, you know, implement and just like get out there. But, you know, as the pandemic has gone on, as I like have become more isolated from, you know, my, my peers, even like my friends in, in, in my class, right? The, the ones that I don't live with, it's, it's really hard to sort of keep up with them on a daily basis if I'm just like not seeing them, right? Um, so like missing those interactions, like you said, is, is really crucial because that, that's where like a lot of the innovation comes out of. Um, but, you know, aside from that, like my, my like quarantine life, I think is fine. <laughs> so I, I have uh, three other roommates that I live with. Two of them are in my class here at MIT. One works on batteries, one uh, works on bioprocessing. And then the third is a student at Harvard. Um, he's at the Broad. He's actually getting ready for his quals uh, right now, which sucks, I hated quals. <laughs> um, but so I, I feel like we, we chill a lot. We pl- we've played a lot of Catan. I, I know that's been like very popular in quarantine and that has not escaped us at all. Like to the point where <laughs> we were like playing daily and people were just like getting so mad at each other that we've like kind of taken a little bit of a break. But you know, there's nothing else to do, so I'm sure we're gonna come back to that. Uh, but you know, I, yeah, it's it's been mostly that. You know, I, I spend a lot of time with my girlfriend, um, who's also uh, a student here at MIT. She also works on on, on batteries, um, so you know, we spend a lot of time together, just like cook. Um, she she's also involved in a lot of the, the advocacy work. In fact, she's one of the like the, the real leaders of of the this second campaign. I, I talked about like the mental health campaign, which was like our first campaign. The second campaign, which looks at more like root causes of mental health, um, has really exploded. And like, you know, that that petition has like thousands of signatures. It's crazy. Um, or you know, over a thousand. But she, yeah, you know, she's like one of the the three like main leaders for that. Um so like being able to work with her on that kind of stuff has just been, you know, that's been awesome to do, I think. Uh and that, you know, that's been like that's you has know, naturally taken a lot of my time over quarantine as well. That is
0: really fun anecdote that you shared and all those things that you talked about 2020 as a whole was a very fantastic year in many ways it offended a lot of things that was in this era of trumpism and the post-truth world it was quite a thing for a year to come in such a powerful force and offend what was already a bit of a Abnormal from this real normal that was there ever since 2016 and that's the thing and this was a really fantastic answer that you gave and this has been a terrific conversation with you right from your research interest that straddles molecular simulations and making combining two hot topics, AIML, and sort of devising better synthesis routes and using those toolkits to revolutionize chemistry and chemical engineering, your pioneering advocacy work that you have been doing with a lot of people in MIT and making a more equitable future of sorts for everyone who comes in and all, and your fantastic research interests and your growing up stories and how exactly, and your per- terrific mentors that have inspired and led you in this path. So, finally, as a random walk podcast tradition, which three people would you like to come and diverse their experience in a random walk?
1: Yeah, I don't know, no, for sure. I, I was like thinking, you know, pretty hard about this question because I can, you know, I, I saw it in like the, the, um, the sheet that you sent beforehand. Is Edge like, you know, quick clarification question, I guess. Like, is it is this more geared towards, you know, people who you think would be interested in, like, academia or just, like, are involved um in you know academic life as grad students, like I guess, like I'm just. they might like, be curious anyone who the was
0: at academia at any point of time. They might be doing something totally different right now. We are having people who were doing particle physics PhDs and post that they are switched to studying the history and sociology of science. The, the um, Pranam nominated the head of the Dalai Lama Center at MIT, and also that's the thing. So it can be anyone who have. Been in academia at some point of time or the other. They might not necessarily have a graduate degree of science, but they were in academia at some point of time. And today they are doing something very interesting, and that you think that will be subject of a great random work.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, yeah, I can I can definitely you know recommend a few people. I, I think one that really comes to mind immediately is just like you know my close friend. They just who is you know a, a grad student here at MIT he you know he he does some like catalysis work he, so he he actually you know joined the lab that I was thinking about joining um funny funny thing about but is that like you know we met during the the visit weekend uh trips to the grad schools you know immediately became very close i know he's like very interested in going into academia to be a professor and and he's got right he's just one of the smartest kids i know uh, so so definitely you know they just they just is number one, you know, I, I'll get you his like, contact information and whatnot. Um, I think two uh, would be a really good person um, would be my, uh, my roommate, Charles, who is also very interested in academia. He works on batteries, I think I mentioned earlier. Um, and he, he was actually the, the person that I roomed with my first year. So, like, when I was on drums, he was on guitar. So I think we really bonded through a lot of that uh, and just like living together the last three years. I think, you know, of course, you'd be a a great person to bring on to your podcast. And, and, you know, of course, the third person I'm going to mention is my girlfriend, Kara, who um, is just I think um, I've, I've like met a lot of incredible people here at MIT who do just like, you know, do both great research and great advocacy. But like, you know, no one does more advocacy work than, than Kara. It's, uh, you know, and she'll just give you such incredible perspective on, you know, directly what the perspectives of, you know, admin are, the top level people here at MIT, just because, you know, through this advocacy work, a lot of, you know, students collaborate, but, you know, eventually we have to meet with um, the high level people here at MIT to, to, to discuss, you know, our demands and to try to negotiate. There's like a few people who actually get to participate in that process. And, and Kara has just been one of those people for like, you know, two plus years at this point. So she, you know, she regularly sits in uh, meetings with like the vice chancellor and the, you know, deans of engineering. So it's like, she's got some, some like great perspective to offer. And I, th- I think she should be a great person to bring onto your podcast for sure.
0: Those are some terrific recommendations and thank you. Thank you for coming and indulging us in a very fascinating random world.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. This, this podcast is super cool. Uh, you you brought on a lot of really interesting people that, you know, I've had the, the pleasure of, of working aside and, you know, listening to now and, you know, best of luck to you. This is this is cool. I hope you keep this up. Thank you.